All right, so uh, we've been in Acts uh, for the, about the last two months, and uh, we've made it towards the end of chapter four, uh, but we, we, every week we need to just recap a little bit of uh, how the story's been flowing. I mean, Acts is a narrative. It's a, it's a story of uh, how God uh, moved in the early church, how he grew the early church. And uh, the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus hasn't ascended, left, hasn't ascended yet, and he's with his disciples. And um, when he's with his disciples, one of the last things he tells them is that you will be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost ends of the earth. Uh, and that's how the kingdom is going to go forward. So just because the king, Jesus, uh, is no longer there uh, physically doesn't mean that the kingdom too has departed. Uh, that the kingdom is still very much there. It's just going to be a little different. The way it's going to be different is that Jesus now is going to reign uh, through his Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. And what we see happen is that the Holy Spirit comes, fills the disciples, fills uh, those people, and gives them power to be those kind of witnesses. And when when that power comes upon them, the kingdom starts to spread. And we see that it's spread in both word and deed. It's spread in word as, uh, as Peter preaches and calls people to repent and to be baptized and put their faith in God. And they do that, and God adds 5,000 people to their number. But it also spreads, uh, indeed, that it spread not just in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense, as this crippled man, who's been crippled since birth, that he's been healed. Now, it sounds like everything in the church would be rosy, right? Not until then, we, uh, what we heard last week uh, was that things all, they, it wasn't all rosy. Uh, there was opposition, uh, because the people who were in charge, the Jewish uh, and the Roman rulers, uh, they were afraid this uprising was going to happen, that these Christians were going to come and upset the power balance that was at stake, that was very beneficial for them. And so they can't really arrest Peter and John for doing anything, so what they tell them to do is to stop preaching, to quit preaching. And Peter says, I, 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 listen, I can't help but talk about what I've seen and what I've heard. In other words, he says, I'm not gonna, I can't follow that. And uh, you know, as soon as those words come out of his mouth, that he knows his opposition's on the way. He knows that this isn't the first time that he's going to stand before these leaders. And think about, how would you handle this impending crisis if you were Peter? What would be running through your mind as you left that room where you with all those rulers and you start walking away? What's going through your mind? How are you going to deal with this? Well, there's a few things that, that came to my mind this week of some options that Peter had. One of them is that Peter could be struggling with a lot of uh, self-doubt. He could just say, I'm going to give up. Because if you know Peter's checkered uh, past, that his spiritual leadership is very poor. His resume is terrible until Acts 2 happens, until he's filled with the Spirit. And I bet he could have thought something like, man, this sure has been a good run the last couple weeks. I can't believe God's used me to preach at Pentecost. I can't believe that he's used me to heal the crippled man. I can't believe I've seen thousands converted. But a good thing has got to come to an end sometime. The gravy train is over because I'm just going to screw this thing up. I'm going to give up being a witness for Jesus. That's one option. I think another option was is for him to kind of puff out his chest and think, man, wasn't this great? I just dropped the gospel mic on these people and I walked out like I own the place. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel and I don't, I don't care what they're going to do to me. Or maybe he walks out of the room differently than either of those postures, but maybe the third way he walks out is that he begins to strategize how he can keep preaching but avoid these leaders. 
maybe he tries to think, all right, I'm going to network in such a way, I'm going to push out these Jewish leaders, these Sadducees, from their cozy, influential place of power with the Romans, and then I want the Christians to come behind them and occupy that space so that we can preach more freely but be unopposed. Does that sound familiar to you, how you would deal with a crisis? See, some of us, we deal with this deep insecurity, and we think that whenever something good happens to us, that it's a pure accident, that at some point the bottom's going to fall out. Others of us, we're pretty self-assured. We think that we can use our gifts, we can use our abilities, and we can avoid all opposition altogether, or we can just overpower opposition. Still others of us, we're real practical. We want to come up with a plan. We want to get all the facts. And we want to take the evidence that we have and, and, and lay it all out. And we want to make a plan going forward on how to deal with this opposition, how to deal with this crisis. So how do you deal with crisis? Fight, flight, or strategize? Now, regardless of what your preferred crisis management program is, uh, all of our default strategies uh, have something uh, that they're all built on. It's the same thing. It's the foundation of self. See, even the response of insecurity is focused on how inadequate we are as a person. But none of these responses are really looking to anything outside of ourselves for help in crisis. And I think what we'll see with Peter is that he doesn't choose any of these routes. All the things that ran through his head, he ended up not going with any of those, and he chooses a different way to deal with this crisis. That's what we see in our passage. So let's read it together. Acts 4, verse, chapter, uh, chapter, Acts 4, verse 23. Uh, when they were released, uh, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The word of the Lord. Uh, All right, tonight I'm going to try to answer three questions. Um, Who do you need in crisis? What do you need to do in crisis? And what does God do in crisis? Who do you need? What do you do? And what does God do? Look at the first one. Who do you need? Look at verse 23. Look who Peter and John go to first. Do you see it? They went to their friends. Now, sure, they had each other. It's Peter and John, and they had the crippled guy who's been hanging on their leg ever since. The three of them, they've been hanging out, but 
they've been disconnected from their community, at least for some days. Their community of faith, their Christian community, uh, they had left at the beginning of chapter 3 when they were going to the temple. And when they went to the temple, that's when all kinds of stuff started to happen. So they had to come back and tell them all that had happened, that the crippled guy was made to walk, that a thousand people came to faith, that they had endured a trial of the court. So of course they wanted to be together with their community. See, in Christian community, when something happens to one, it happens to us all. And we see this over and over again, this theme of community, this theme of friendship in the book of Acts. But it's really a pretty common theme throughout the whole scriptures. Um, go way back to the Old Testament. Uh, David had a really close friend in Jonathan, and they got really close because of the opposition they had from Jonathan's dad, King Saul. Crisis. You had Daniel. Daniel had three really close friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How did they get really close? They're in the middle of crisis against the nation of Babylon. Then you had Ruth and Naomi. The crisis they were facing was famine. That's why they got so close. Then you have Mary with Elizabeth. Uh, Mary, I mean, the Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary. And you know what her crisis was. She got pregnant supernaturally. And what's going to happen to her socially? She's going to be outcast now? Well, the first person she go to is her cousin. She knew that she could help her. Then you have Paul. You have Paul who's with Silas and he's with Barnabas. And they went through shipwrecks, imprisonments, and beatings. That's how they got to be close. Then you had Jesus and the twelve disciples. So this passing comment for Peter and John to go be with their friends is not trivial at all. Because as a Christian, we were all made for community. This Christianity thing, it's a social affair. It's not just something that's about you and your relationship with God. And what you find out in the midst of your suffering, especially in persecution, is that you need a community of faith more than ever. What you find out, too, is that what you have are just these normal, ordinary relationships, and then they get transformed into these deep gospel friendships because of the suffering that we are enduring. So let me expand on that idea. How our ordinary relationships become these deep gospel friendships in the midst of persecution. See, you and I, all of us, uh, in our daily lives, uh, we are accustomed to a world that runs on this principle. It's this for that. That's the principle of our whole world. You give this money for that good or service. You have to give this time or this talent for that wage or that salary. And even as Christians, we assume this is how relationships work. We offer this humor, this pleasantness, this money, these good looks, not mine, this, this body, this personality, this swagger, and then you're going to like me in return. That's how we think they work. But when we suffer, we don't have anything to offer anyone except an inconvenience. There's no this except our suffering. So think about Peter and John right here. They just told this exact same people who killed Jesus that they're not going to quit preaching. So if you're going to be friends with Peter and John in this moment, you're going to be in danger. 
Yet what Peter and John find are people who embrace them, even though they are risky people to be friends with. See, friends, that's grace. Grace doesn't pay based on merit or output. Grace transcends the this-for-that dynamic of relationship. See, it's in the gospel that our friends will voluntarily enter into our suffering with us, even though we are a burden. Why? Because a Christian sees that this is what Jesus has done for them. See, Jesus took our limitations in his incarnation... He took our sin in his crucifixion so that he might give us life in his resurrection. We were a burden. We were an inconvenience. We don't have anything to offer him, but he offers us life. Jesus overturned the this for that dynamic of relationships. So how about you? Have you experienced gospel friendship in the midst of your suffering? Would persecution be much less scary if you knew that Jesus had provided you with friends who are going to stand with you? So who do you need? Who do you need when you're in crisis? You need Christian friends. The next question that we see answered in verses 24 to 30 is that what you do in crisis. What do you do? You pray. Here's what you have in verses 24 to 30. Uh, from about halfway through verse 24, <clears throat> uh, through the end of verse 28, uh, you have, uh, you have um, Peter and John, the community, uh, they are expressing in their prayer the sovereignty of God. They're just reminding themselves of who God is. In the last two verses, they're making a request of God, a petition. So in other words, the community spends two-thirds of their time thinking about God and one-third of their time thinking about what they need from God. Those first four and a half verses about the sovereignty of God, they're slam-packed with the truth of the power of who God is. It all starts with what God's addressed as. You see it? You see what God's addressed as? Sovereign Lord. You will not find anywhere else in the New Testament that God is referred to in this way. It's a very rare instance. And I think the reason that God is referred to as Sovereign Lord here is because these people, these early Christians, need to remind themselves that there's someone who is much greater and exerts far more control than any Roman or any Jewish ruler. They need to remind themselves of that. Then they need to remind themselves of what this God, this sovereign Lord, what did he do? Well, look right after that. Look at the very first thing they say. We just, I mean, we just view this as like filler talk, right? Says it doesn't really mean anything, but it really does. It says sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Okay, that's what God has on his resume. That's how powerful he is. There's no Jewish or any Roman ruler that's going to be able to put anything like that on their resume. They're reminding themselves, this is the God that we know. He's the sovereign Lord, and he's done these things, and we're going to acknowledge this kind of power. But then it keeps going. Then he starts getting into the Psalm 2 stuff. 
And in the Psalm 2 stuff, Psalm 2 is really all, is talking all about how God is more powerful than any earthly ruler. So Peter and John, they, they realize, the Christian, early Christians, they realize that, that what they are experiencing is nothing personal against them. That this is a spiritual thing. There have always been human beings who are opposed to God and what he's doing in the world. And the early Christians are just falling in line with all of God's people of those who have been in crisis because they're being opposed. Then in verse 27, verse 27 gets into the trickiest of what I think is um, the trickiest of all theological territory. You see where it is? In verse 27, you see who's listed. You've got Herod, you've got Pontius Pilate, and who's along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And what, what, what does he note about those people? He says that they're against Jesus. They were so against Jesus that they killed him. I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus dying in this way, but do you know that Jesus dying is the greatest injustice that the world's ever known? You have the Son of God, you've got the sinless one, and he's being accused and convicted and punished for wrongdoing that he did not do. So where's God in this? Where is God in the middle of this great injustice? What's he up to? Does he just fold his hands and say, oh yeah, this is just part of the plan? No, no, no. Look at verse 28. What 28 tells us is that God is using these evil people to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. So you see where the question of all questions comes out. You see it? The question is this. How is a good God who is in control of all things involved with human evil? Let me say that again. How is a good God who is in control of all things involved with human evil? Well, if anybody gives you a really tight answer, uh, they're lying to you. Because there is no tight answer for this question. There's no way to fully explain on this side of heaven how a good God is in control of all things involved with human evil. But what can be said is that the circumstances surrounding our lives, that there are no accidents. That now, they may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hands of our sovereign God. All evil is subject to him. Evil can't get to you unless he permits it. And so if God is sovereign over all evil, then you can trust him that somehow he can work evil for good. Let I me mean, just think about it this way. The greatest injustice of all time, he worked for the salvation of the world. So he can take whatever is the cause of your crisis and work it for his glory and your good. I think the really important lesson for that, that this has to teach us is that there's someone who's in charge. And that someone who's in charge, you can talk to them. That's what they're doing right here. I experienced the exact opposite with Sling TV. Um, I, I, I subscribed to cable about a year ago. I subscribed to cable. I was real excited about the SEC network. I was tired of not being, not being able to watch UK play football. And um, 
I really wanted to watch NBA every chance I had to. And um, so I subscribed to cable. I have not had cable uh, since 1999. It had, it had been, I know I've watched cable, but just, you know, at restaurants and at friends' houses where I was being a mooch. But now I had it in my own home. I was really enjoying it for a few months, and then I looked at my credit card statement one month, and there it was, Sling TV, $24.99. Right after that, Sling TV, $24.99. Double charged. And I thought, this is a crisis in the Wimhoff house. <laughs> you can't charge me for something I didn't pay for. So I called the 800 number, and the first person I talked to couldn't do anything, so I do, you know what to do. Say, hey, I want to talk to your boss. So I talked to the boss. He couldn't do anything for me. I said, hey, let me talk to your boss. They couldn't do anything for me, and they said, you know what, we have a policy around here. We don't give refunds. I said, great, you can cancel my service. I mean, that's what you would have done. I mean, you're a, a sensical, uh, warm-blooded human being. You would have done the same thing. But the problem was I couldn't get someone to do anything about a problem. And that's not the way God operates. See, in prayer, you have a God who can do something about your suffering. And the best thing that you can do is not just pray and not just ask for stuff. The best thing that you can do is what God's people do right here. That they remind themselves about the sovereignty of God. It's almost like in their prayer, they're just talking themselves into believing what they already believed about God. Because it's in suffering that our stated theology, what we know is true, gets really far away from our functional theology, the way we're actually living. Because it's in our suffering that we begin to believe lives uh, like this. That God doesn't care about us, that's why he let suffering happen to us. We begin to think, believe lies like, oh, okay, our suffering is a result of my poor decision, and God can't have anything to do with sin, so we better pick up the pieces ourselves. But when we say, Sovereign Lord, you made all things, you can work through my evil or the evil of others, then you begin to believe that God really is powerful. And when you do that, you begin to make some really bold requests. That's what we see in verses 29 and 30 in their prayer. You see what the request was? Look, we'll read 29 and 30 together. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know what they didn't ask for? They didn't ask for their enemies to be removed. They didn't ask to be delivered from their suffering. They didn't ask for judgment upon their enemies. Those are all things I would have asked for. But what they asked for is for the Holy Spirit to empower their preaching and their healing ministry. This teaches us something about prayer. It teaches us that these are the kind of prayers that God's happy to answer. If you ask God to enable you to obey him, you can be sure he's going to answer you. That's all, he, that's all they were doing right here. So you see, you see the, the need and who we need in crisis, who we need are Christian friends. What we do in crisis, we pray. We reflect on the character of God and we ask for his help to do what he's already asked us to do. And these are super important. Who, who you need and what you do are important. But the third point, in verse 31, this is the real kicker. This is the most important part of our passage. And this is what does God do in our crisis? 
Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What you see here is God answers their prayer. I mean, the same language that's used in their request, Luke uses, the author of Acts uses, to say what God did in their life. They asked to be able to continue to speak the word of God with boldness, and that's what God did. And I really think the reason that we don't pray is that we really don't think God's going to do anything. Or, if something does happen, that it would have happened even if we didn't pray. You know what that's called, don't you? It's called cynicism. Cynicism questions God's active goodness in our lives. And when cynicism takes over, you will not pray. So what do we do? If we find ourselves being cynical, what's the way out of that? Well, I think it's being thankful. See, it's in our thankfulness. It, it, thankfulness isn't just uh, this naive optimism. Thankfulness isn't a matter of forcing yourself to see the happy side of life. What thankfulness is, is that it, 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 when you are thanking God, you begin to restore the natural order of your dependence upon the Lord. It enables you to really see life as it really is. See, if we got in the habit of looking backwards at yesterday, that's not back. Is that backwards? That's, that's forward to you, right? Backwards at yesterday. If we were looking backwards at yesterday and we began to see all the ways that God provided for us, we began to see how gentle God was in convicting us of our sins. We begin to see all the ways that God specifically enabled us to do what he asked us to do. Then we would see God at work in our life. Here's another word. This is from Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. I would recommend it to each of you. And in it, he says this. Cynicism looks reality in the face, calls it phony, and prides itself on its insight as it pulls back. Thankfulness looks reality in the face and rejoices at God's care. It replaces a, spirit of, a bitter spirit with a generous one. Brother and sister, I, I really believe that even in your suffering, or maybe even especially in your suffering, that you can look back and see how God is caring for us you'll begin to see that God's active in caring for you. And when you do, you will pray. And when you pray, God will answer your prayers. So where are you this evening? What is your crisis? Do you have Christian friends to help you endure this crisis? Do you really believe that God is alive and that he's in the business of answering your prayers? brothers and sisters, as your pastor, I can promise you that God will answer your prayers when you're in the midst of persecution. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're active. Lord, just the little things that you do for us uh, that most of the time we don't even notice, Lord, that you are helping us. Uh, Lord, I, I pray uh, that we, uh, as we've 
talked about so much, that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we would really see that we're operating uh, with a tenth of a gallon gas tanks. And as soon as we leave the pump station, we've got to come back and get full. Uh, Lord, would you fill us yet again? And Lord, we may come back even later this evening to get to be full of your spirit. Lord, we need your help. We cannot do this on our own. We pray these things in your name. Amen.